0: your brain has a capacity for learning that is virtually limitless which makes every human a potential genius michael j Gel. welcome back to the neuroscience meets social and emotional learning podcast for episode number 220 For returning guests, welcome back. And for those who are new here who don't know me yet, I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator with a passion for learning, understanding difficult concepts, and then breaking them down so we can all use and apply the most current research to improve our productivity and results in our schools, our sports environments, and modern workplaces. My goal with this podcast is to make the research applicable for all of us to use, whether we have a background in science or not. On today's episode number 220, we have Rich Carr and Dr. Kieran Omani, whose pedagogic model, Brain Centric Design, is enjoying rapid acceptance in schools and businesses with high praise from different sectors including Nike executives, who say that upon implementing their ideas, their learners, who are athletes, not only understood their positions better, but also reached their goals faster. And then the Department of Defense noted that this process, their brain-centric design, invites us to lean in and become interactive with our learning, enabling us to grasp topics quickly and most importantly, with vastly greater retention. The feedback from those in the classroom who begun implementing these ideas follow suit, saying that brain centric design took the guesswork out of the classroom and highlighted the scientific reasons behind the success. And Ellie Thompson, a Fortune 100 learning and quality specialist, highlighted how great it felt to identify the positive traits of cognitive flexibility, social-emotional engagement, and adaptive expertise that she already possessed. Riching Kieran's model explains that while the behavior is pedagogy with rewards and punishment, might sound like the best way for students to learn in the classroom or for employees to be motivated in the workplace, but there's a more effective way to learn with the brain in mind. And this is exactly why we cover the most current neuroscience research on this podcast. Who knew that learning the most current research in neuroscience would become so important to the world? I certainly didn't when launching this idea just under three years ago this month But it's clear with the number of downloads we receive all over the world in 168 countries now that this is an important and timely topic for us to all pay attention to. As we're now moving into season eight of the podcast with a focus on brain health and well-being as it relates to learning, Rich and Kieran's brain-centric design fits right in as they focus on the training and certification of communicators, coaches, and educators to form a deep understanding in the pedagogy of their program, Brain Centric Design, the surprising neuroscience behind learning with deep understanding. They'll show us how great things can happen when your brain is free of all the behaviorist constructs of rewards and punishment that we've all seen in our public schooling and corporate workplaces. Let's meet Rich Carr and Kira Nomani of Brain Centric Design, and take a close look at why the behaviorist model that many of us have used because it works is outdated as they show us there's a better way to learn in our schools and classrooms of the future. Welcome, Bridge Carr. And we've got Kiran Omani, that who will be providing his answers via voice. So we're gonna incorporate him into this from Brain Centric Design. Thank you so much, Richard, for reaching out to me and sharing your learning model with all of us today. This is so exciting.
1: Well, I I couldn't be happier being here and, and only because you're like one of those, I'll call you rare, but I know you're international. To me, it was like one of those rare finds, you're on LinkedIn and then you see somebody who has content you know valuable content the reason you're there not necessarily get uh, applause and whatnot and uh now to be on your show is just a great honor so thank you
0: oh this is fun and when we were talking beforehand you were mentioning your background that you know you didn't even come from this uh you came from what, what was your field i, I don't want to say radio but were you from broadcasting before?
1: communications yeah mass communications in the military i was in mass communications uh I've been every possible job in radio from uh, overnight DJ to owning several radio stations, uh, managed Telemundo stations, worked for Paul Allen for Microsoft, nothing but communications in the military. I was uh, in the army uh, communications. So I was always trying to figure out how to get something from one person's head into somebody else's head. Uh, and that's what led me to the learning sciences and cognitive neuroscience.
0: Well, this is this is going to be good. And I really connected with you when we met. And then when I got to researching your book and uh, and going on your YouTube and seeing what people are saying about you in the sports world, in the corporate world and in education, that's when I started getting excited. And I was writing back. I'm so excited about this. This was like a few weeks ago. So this is So, Rich, just a quick glance at the praise of your work in the beginning of your book, Brain-Centric Design, the surprising neuroscience behind learning with deep understanding, which it is surprising because it does take such deep understanding to learn this neuroscience topic, but I couldn't help notice the testimonial written by Alan Breeze from Washington State Prison. And he said that there must be a way for hardheads like myself to learn that doesn't include years of solitary confinement. And if he had only found your method, maybe he could have been Master Chief Brazi from the US Navy. What did you think when you read his testimonial and what's going on with your work and what you're hearing from people?
1: Yeah, I thought it was beautiful. You know, honestly, you know, everyone hopes. Uh, and I I never strove to kind of go this direction. Again, I was from marketing and and sales and communications, but I never strove to see something that would alter so many people in so many ways uh, because it's so simple by design, you know, and meaning that, yeah, we have this brain, this three pounds of goop, and and we've all grew up in school and, and know parts of it and basic things that they do. But it's never been broken down to something like a little tool set that anybody could get a hold of and go oh you know it's the difference between intuition which is super powerful and fact which is even more powerful (laughs) and and so it's it's just that it's just that it's been simplified in a in a in a in a very beautiful simple way and people picking up on it like you say from inmates uh to to you know to governments and it's just super thrilling Uh, to see the brain unlocked or at least accessible enough to where people can unleash uh, uh, their true potential.
0: Now I hear it all the time because I love the science side of this. And, uh, you know, we were talking just beforehand when you first saw it, you saw the potential from a different angle uh, but then, you know, when I'm trying to explain this stuff, sometimes we can go in the weeds and I can start talking about beta amyloids and tangles in the brain, and then I've lost everybody. So what did you see with the potential of this and how do you keep it simple so that people can understand this topic?
1: The, the thing I saw most as it applies to business was that it was it was uh, not only a mental model, which is extremely valuable, but it was a a pedagogic model, a literal framework, an empirical piece of knowledge that has been attempted to be disproved time and time and time and after again, like at Columbia University all, all over. And, and it works every time. So it was literally like, to me, it was breadcrumbs on how to get a new thought or into somebody else's head and not just get it in their head, but have them understand it the way I intended them to do. And that there would be an observable behavior afterwards you know so in 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 marketing and communications to me that meant i could run a radio commercial and that radio commercial would drive lots of people to go buy cars if i was successful at that i would make lots of money so my original desire to go this direction was based off of that if we all have a brain and all brains work mechanically the same way and all those new memories are observed by some sense, whether touching or feeling or hearing or seeing, then there's got to be a replicable trail to get that new information into somebody's brain so that they see it the way I see it and act on it as intended. Otherwise it's just a waste of time with communication. So I was really kind of reaching for that pure communication that 100% you understand it the way I do. and that's when I bumped into Kieran.
0: Wow, wow! And how did you meet him? Because I know he came from Ireland, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a long, funny story, but I'll synopsize it is by saying uh, uh, eighty eight years ago, I was in a just this horrible motorcycle accident, oh, wow. and when I was recovering, my son was uh, at a picnic with his soon to be wife. They were dating at the time, and her aunt was at this picnic bragging about this neuroscientist that she was stalking at the University of Washington because she had heard him do a lecture and needed to know more, had to know more. Uh, And my son, uh, Jesse, came home and said, hey, weren't you looking for one of those brain guys and neuroscientists or something? Missy knows one. And I said, oh, introduce us. So we had coffee in Seattle. Within 10 seconds, we were locked on the same basic, end goal, that pure communication goal. Uh, He was coming at it from a learning standpoint and I was coming at it from a sales communication standpoint. And that's when it really clicked that we're talking about the exact same thing, just the processing of new information from one thing to another, you know, you can call it sales, parenting, uh, management, facilitating, teaching, uh, training. It's all the same thing, new information, uh, to where it's communicated purely and acted on as intended. What's that recipe? And Kieran had it. I mean, that's what his life's work from Ireland, you know, started 30 plus years ago, led him to the Northwest. And that's how that meeting happened, just from a chance mention. Oh, by the way, that aunt not only began following uh, Kieran extensively, but she went back to school, got her doctorate uh in neural education and the results thereof because it's exploding schools as well her name is um missy widman uh, and uh she's amazing people
0: wow i really related to kieran's story we'll play some clips of his answers as we go along because he came he left ireland because he noticed a lot of suicides and that sort of thing and so he comes to the u.s Thinking like, how is he going to make an impact? And it was Columbine, which drew me to the US. And some guy just asked on an interview the other day, he was out in in Vancouver, and he said, why wouldn't you run from the US? Why would you go towards that? And I just thought the same thing when I was listening to Kieran talking, why did he go uh, towards the U.S. thinking anything was going to be different than what he saw in Ireland. Didn't he s- see that the, we had the same problems in the U.S. that he had left in Ireland?
1: Uh, but he also thought we had the answers. I mean, again, when you're abroad and look back at the U.S., yeah, it's a mess, uh, but it's a super successful mess and there's got to be answers there because they're, I'm not finding them here. I, if I broke that down and I don't know if you'd agree with me or not, but if it's, you know, the grass is always greener, True. right? Well, I'm, yeah. I'm not finding yeah. it here. I'm going to go over here and see if I can right. find it. Holy. Totally. Uh, you know, and he's a researcher and and he found it, you know, and everything he did uh, and everything he studied in every country and every library and every nook that he, he researched on because he researches every single day uh, intensely. I mean, he loves, as he calls them, beautiful baby brains. Uh, because now that there are directions, at least learning directions, there's so many things we can do is again, leaders, parents, people, communicators, uh, coaches, consultants, anybody to make sure that communication is more clear so that you're not wasting anybody's time and everybody understands appropriately what you're trying to, to push at them. Cause typically it's for the good. And if we can do that faster with better retention, a hundred percent of the time, why wouldn't you?
2: Let's hear Kiran's thoughts on this.
3: Thank you, Andrea, for having us on the show today. Uh, My name is Kiran, and you can tell I'm from Ireland. And when I came to the United States, I was looking for solutions to a problem that was plaguing our educational system. We were having a spate of suicides in our teenagers, boys and girls aged 13 through 15 and 16, who had decided that they were opting out as opposed to opting in for school. This was unacceptable to me. I didn't understand it, and I didn't know how to solve it. And I thought that a country that lived by the rules of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness would have better uh, knowledge about uh, children and capacity for helping them to have success in life. And when I got here, I realized that in a very complex society like this uh, you had similar problems and in some cases worse problems and so my journey began uh, back in 1982 and it took me many many years uh, decades in fact to um, come to the realization that there was a crisis not only in um, education itself but in the way we were raised uh, by our um, parents and teachers and the system that was used by them and their um, advisors I would I suspect we would call them um, was already rooted in a problem that nobody had seen if you're in if you're living in the problem it's hard to see it and um, when I was able to get an outsider's perspective on what was going on I realized that uh, we had missed a turning point on the road to what I would consider to be democratization of education. And that uh, turning point was the cognitive revolution, which happened on a particular day in 1956 at MIT. And um, having missed that, we continued to create educational systems on a model that soon became not only irrelevant, but also out of sync with how modern society was progressing, especially since most of modern society which includes neuroscience and AI, cognitive sciences, um, had gone off in a different directions from the 1960s on. So we ended up inheriting the old system, and by accident um, I stumbled across the information and the knowledge to see that and then to figure out a way to progress beyond that so I'll stop there because it's a it's a pretty intense journey and most of the information will become clear in the rest of the questions thank you
0: so let's look at this so we can clearly see that our K12 educational system needs transformation and that we're far behind other countries like you know you you work internationally you see it as well like finland and japan and we have so many different Uh, countries that tune into this podcast internationally and I just wonder what they think when you know things are happening over here that they just can't comprehend like people in Australia go why is this happening in your schools we just don't understand it but um, you know Kieran mentioned his beginning part of the journey but what did what did you guys notice or what did he see with the behaviorist method Where did it go wrong? Because that's how I was raised. Definitely, you know, my dad, you know, instilled these things in me that made me not want to go off the path. It was reward and punishment at home in my house. If I didn't make my bed right, it was ripped apart. But what are we missing when it comes to this type of of method with learning and deep understanding?
1: I would say freedom uh, or, or potential. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, they use potential a lot or, you know, unlimited potential. I 100% agree with that. But I think the, the feeling of it is freedom. There's nothing better than doing something on your own and, and getting better at it and, and having it be for something. And, and, and all of those vague words I use are interchangeable with anybody's desire, basically. But if you could do it on your own and succeed at it, that's, that, that is the goal in life. And i think that's what um the biggest difference is uh with the behaviorist method it it has its you know parts of society uh because uh in a in a short amount of time you can you can thoroughly get somebody to do something they didn't understand it they, it was just a conditioned response you know it had nothing to do with them it's a form of you know entrapment and and uh in a light way, you know, not, not in a super liberal way, but it does label you in some way. uh, And to label is to limit. And that's it. Why would you limit, especially again, a beautiful baby brain, because those same brains are now immature and running businesses and making the same decisions. And that's how it replicates. It's, it's almost innate really, because uh, as you said, you, you, you know, up, up until uh, say kindergarten, you know, you're just happy to do finger paints and everybody puts it on the fridge. But in first grade, suddenly, no, you got to keep it within the lines, Andrea. You know, Rich, don't use that color. We said use blue, you know, and freedom slowly gets tucked away. Yeah. Um, so I'm not like a new wage hippie or anything, but I think freedom is just a, an overlooked aspect that we're all looking for and maybe too shy to say once in a while.
0: So interesting, because I always think of this whole thing that we're doing with the podcast, we talk about schools, and we talk about sports as well, but into the workplace. And that's what I found so difficult in the corporate world was to sit in a cubicle and do my work in that environment. Just the girl that needs to run up the mountain before an interview, (laughs) I had to figure out how was I going to exercise so I could sit in a cubicle. It was freedom. That's what I was missing.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just a, a beautiful thing. And most people thrive in that environment. Now the secret with business as in school, uh, is, you know, is to have that environment, uh, controlled for a desired result. Uh, and again, that's, that's what, that is what BCD is, is like, if you can get, um, collective intentionality out of any group, why wouldn't you? I mean, suddenly we're all on the same mission. We're independent within that mission, doing what we're best at, communicating in a way where, you know, I don't do something and you say, rich, you idiot. You know, it's a psychologically safe by the design of the model uh, situation and it's iterative. So, you know what happens. It's not just sit there at a table and listen to Bob go off on you and, you know, because that that's what we do again it's a neat thing and uh this is different because it, it is it sways into those soft skills but i think that's what's missing in the behaviors method is the soft skills you only want a desired result regardless of the human the difference now and we see this by all the calls for resiliency and and Brene brown and you know the whole movement all that great work is saying that what has been missed is soft skills And if we can address those, if we can emotionally connect everybody to what we're doing, we should have a pretty wonderful place rather than just a few guys drawing the line.
0: Definitely. And then this made me think about, you know, bringing this into the classroom and, you know, thinking about, I've got two kids, one's 12 and one's 10, and one just thrives with rules. You give her a bunch of rules, she remembers them and And, you know, she's not going to break the rules. She'll follow them and do the assignments to the T of what she's asked. And then she's she's happy. So, uh, you know, you guys would call her a dandelion. She's resilient. She if you put some cracks in the concrete, she's going to grow up and find her way no matter what. But then I've got a 10 year old who just doesn't work in this situation. When we had the homeschooling she thrived when she had a chance to pet the cat and then go do her math she was just in her own environment so can you explain why one would thrive like a dandelion and one would um you know need some sort of other method like what what was it like a an orchid
1: yeah the orchid the dandy and we're talking about daniel boyce's work and it's it's a phenomenal piece of work we use it uh, to help um, uh, people understand how people, uh, react to the world. Uh, and so like a dandelion in an orchid, that's, that's, uh, basically people who have high or low autonomic nervous systems, how they interpret their environment, uh, your, your daughter is the dandelion. She interprets it as, you know, her domain, and like you say, she'll, no matter what you throw at her, uh, she, she'll do fine. I'm that I'm a dandelion, uh, doesn't matter. Orchids, you know, if you don't say hi to them when you walk in the house, all of a sudden, mom hates me, dad hates me, the world hates me. <laughs> they you know, they just look at the world different. Now there's ways of handling them. Um, and one's not smarter than the other. In fact, it's typically the reason they're called the orchid is if they're greenhoused, you know, like the flower, you know, if they have the right water, the right pH, so on and so forth. And now I'm, you know, the analogy here is is the learning space. Uh, what we used to call classrooms, we call them learning spaces because everyone hates a classroom. we got bad memories of those. But uh, uh, the orchid, once it's properly taken care of, blooms and and Uh becomes the most beautiful flower in the world. Those the Steve Jobs of the world, you know, those those folks that just look at the world a little differently, have a higher reactivity to uh, different senses. and again, once they're given the opportunity to bloom, then the, then the whole garden, the dandelions rise too, because they're just getting along and then they notice the orchid and it's like, well, I'm going to grow a little stronger, get a little better, you know, because dandelions can skirt the system. They, they, they just do, they know everything that kind of. So I look at people and everybody, every, every job site, every place we've ever worked uh, has this, we use kids. I've got four kids and I've got three dandelions in an orchid. Oh, um, so. <laughs> and it's uh you know, and it look, and it's nice when you look at the world this way, and that's why when, when you move to this system, the, the framework, uh, brain-centric design is designed for the orchids because they are the ones that, that have not been addressed in the behavior system. Behavior system is for the dandelions kind of, in the analogy you said, no matter what you throw, 50% of them are going to work, you know, in a, in, in a 30 person class, you know, 15 15 of these people are going to do just fine. And these are are similar facts to any kind of group of people. Half will do fine, half won't. And the half that won't probably weren't greenhouse. You change the environment and the way you know communication comes at them, and they warm to it. They emotionally connect to it, and once they emotionally connect to it, they bloom. So it's not a directive piece. It's 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 what we call the Kiran principle: affect before effect equals communication, or or you know emotions before outcomes and that should be anywhere
0: exactly i love seeing that example because now it started to be applicable for you know when i can start to apply it to my own household i thought wow look at yeah we've got in our household three dandelions and then we've got the one orchid that needs <laughs> a lot of direction and help and and love, you know, yeah. to make sure that she fits in all the time, and so this it, it really helps when you can start seeing it. And how are we going to now use this to to help, you know, everybody thrive?
1: Yeah, and that's the goal. I mean, you know, now that it's it's been proven and proven and is taking hold and growing in a wonderful way, um, you know, how how would your world change if everything you said to everybody was acted on as you intended and they understood it that way? I mean, we it eliminates HR problems, it eliminates management problems, it eliminates parental problems. You know, my daughter, just today, she's about ready to graduate from ATM, and she had an event, that. and when she was telling me about it, she was all excited, and I said, you're having an amygdala hijack, and of course, she knows BCD, you know, she she's like, you're right, I'm just confused, and so, you know, from there, she reframed the situation and realized that she was in a state of... <laughs> you know. So it, it's fun when you can even talk that way, because if you get the vocabulary and you can say amygdala hijack to your kids, you know, whether they're 10 years old or, you know, in Anne-Marie's case, she's you know 22, um, it's the same thing, it's communicating. And as a parent, you're not gonna communicate anything that's gonna hurt your kid. You right. know? So you wanna make sure they understand and act on what you're saying. And the same thing for management teachers, facilitators, like I say, so it's, a, it's a very synonymous term of communication.
0: It's true that they get it at at a young age. That's what I liked when I was I was reading your book and and you talked about the fact that this is, you know, directed for educators and can be used in the workplace and also for parents and the students themselves, because, you know, I've been doing this work with the brain since 2014 it was that year that you know I just had to learn the brain myself here. And so my kids have kind of grown up, you know, what does mommy do in her office? And she they, they all know what I'm doing. They're, they're, she's helping people to figure out the brain while she's figuring it out herself. That's pretty much what they say. And they, they get it. Whereas, yeah, it, you know, we weren't ever, we didn't ever think about our brains.
1: No, we thought about pirates and buried treasure. <laughs> and yeah. And that's okay you know, but at the same time that the the information wasn't there. I mean, this isn't this, what we're talking about is a new science. I mean, like it really was kind of born in the nineties, you know, before it became a a thing. Uh, My my old boss, Paul Allen, put, you know, millions and millions and millions into Seattle brain Institute to start slicing into this thing, to to figure things out. And then you have uh, people like Kieran whose life work was to find out why a 13 year old boy on his birthday would hang himself, when he seemingly had everything going for him. Was it something that happened in school? You know, the kid had so much potential, you know, why does it sit and So he came at that pure communication piece from a, an entirely different angle from, from the world he was in, which is teaching, which is the world we all go through. Right. And so um, that, that's, that's where the battle began, you know, and it's just started organically with teachers. And, you know, as we speak now, he's in London. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful.
2: Let's hear Kiran's thoughts on this.
3: The question 1b, why do some people seem to thrive in this system? It's very simple actually. Uh, when you measure children's autonomic nervous system reactivity and realize that 50% of our children are pretty resilient and can survive just like dandelions in the crack in the concrete you realize very quickly that it doesn't matter whether you have a very sophisticated system or in fact a very antiquated system that's out of sync with how modern people live these children are so resilient it doesn't matter they will survive so therefore the school systems appear to be successful for fifty percent of the cases and this coincides very clearly with um, the data that's available every October 1st in the nation's report card NAEP the National Association of Education Performance shows us and has shown us since about the 1960s when they began to collect information that we have never been able to get past 50 or so percent and in fact year by year it gets worse and um, this this not only aligns with how the system is out of sync with modern society but also how the Other 50% of children who are more sensitive and have higher autonomic nervous system reactivity are not able to uh, survive the systems of not only rewards but also the punishments that, or I should probably phrase that differently, not only the punishments which most children can't survive but the rewards are also out of sync because they don't trust the people who give rewards and punishments.
0: In the next question, I wanted to know from Kieran why it's such a bad idea to give kids candy as a reward in the classroom. Let's hear from Kieran.
3: You are so right, Andrea. It's hard to know why candy is given as a reward. In fact, all rewards and punishments should be taken out of education. We know that an extrinsic system like rewards and punishments which is binary in in its very makeup is not very helpful in the learning space so here's the science behind it we know that when there's no cognitive load that means when the work is basically physical um i need to move this box over here or let me take all this um, all these um, we will say PE gear and move them from this room into this room children will work for a reward all day long and it's good for them because there is no um, cognitive load it's just a physical load it's like an if then if you do this i will give you candy or a star or some kind of reward that's like that but as soon as there's a cognitive load if you have to make some calculations in particular like solving a problem are engaging in a difficult challenge that might need you to work as a collaborative group or to study and focus, get into a state of flow, then the reward causes the dopamine system to kick in and it interferes with the system that helps them to be creative and to be uh, able to solve problems, able to take on challenges and to come up with what I would consider to be critical and original thinking. And this is the big crisis in education, that when we have children working towards grades, which are labels that limit them, or even stratifies them, and my child is a C minus, your child is an A plus, that doesn't help either me or the child in the system to survive and to be able to actually grow and structure their the architecture of their brain so that they can be not only successful in society, but also, uh, rewarded in their own life because it's intrinsic. And when I distinguish between extrinsic and intrinsic, I'm talking about a difference between a binary thinking of rewards and punishments as opposed to a, a four-dimensional way of looking at life, where people are are focused on the idea of autonomy, uh, some choice in how I do things, mastery. I I can see that I have improved and learned, and I'm able to. Um, do things. And then finally, um, the most important one, purpose. Why am I doing things? Uh, If I'm doing it for a grade or if I'm doing it for um, some kind of piece of candy or something, then it's not about the work anymore. It's not about me and my uh, connection to how I solve problems or engage in in any of the um, important Um, what I would consider to be mentalistic events that help me to solve problems and get um, specific uh, energy around my, my, my capacity for being in society and doing things that make sense but if I'm doing it just for a piece of candy or for a star or for a grade then it's not about the work anymore it's about the grade
0: Well, Kieran's answer to my next question kind of blew me away because I wanted to understand this rewards punishment system, how it carries into the workplace, because, you know, we know how it works in schools. And then it goes into the workplace and, you know, it just prevents employees from reaching their full potential. You're either going to hit your sales goal or you don't hit your sales goal. And then one year you hit it and you're a superstar and they're giving you an award. And the next year you're fired because, you know, your sales pipeline is, is weak. So, you know, how does this impact our brain and our productivity as we go into the workplace with this system?
1: again, I think it's just limiting because again, um, you, 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 only have that to go for, you know, but with a simple reframing of, of the job and what you're doing in that job. Um, and again, I came from the world of sales, which fortunately when I was young, it was presented to me, to me as problem solving. So I wasn't trying to con anybody into anything. Um, the more problems sol- I solved, uh, the more money I would make. Right. Um, but when you, I think the, the the, the way it works in the workplace is again, it, it, it is a natural means of survival. This is what I know. Um, the other thing you get when you get into the, the workplace is like stakeholder resistance, because the very things that got them to where they are, which is like uh, confidence in uh, uh, their intuition and where it led them, are, are maybe not the things that's gonna take them to the next level. You know, it used to be, if if you remembered a lot of stuff, if you could state off facts, you were real valuable to a company. And this is for anybody listening. Google changed that. You don't need to know facts anymore. You know, the most high value work is cognitive and that's, that's brain, that's thinking. And that's, that's the whole weird thing to me about the the, the education system is it's the education system. The one thing they're trying to, to change is the brain, but Everybody going through the school systems and everybody in business, they've never been taught to think they've only been told to think. And not only that, they've been told what to think. Think is just a word. We think we know. Now there's a science that says, here's what it is. And here's how to use it to your advantage. Again, why wouldn't you jump on that? (laughs) I think it's just revolutionary. And, and, and that's, that's what a lot of business is waking up to. I shouldn't say no business. I mean, there are, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of businesses that are into this now that have, you know, behavioral science departments or nudge departments. Um, It is catching on because it's, it's scalable, it's predictable, it's replicable, uh, and everybody has a brain and it fixes so many issues too. Like uh, the way you look at the world, you know, rather than um, look at somebody as a gender or a race or, or religion or what have you. Uh, We look at everybody as a brain because, again, all the brains work the same way. (laughs) And all those different perspectives add to the group. You know, there's so many great reasons for doing it. And again, it's just new. So I think it's just that adaption from stakeholder resistance uh, to acknowledging how you got here um, to being open to those things that are driving results.
2: Let's hear Kieran's thoughts on this.
3: You're so right. Yes, the workplace is an extension of the school place. We grow up in the schools and we find out that we're measured on some kind of testing system that is meaningless to our capacity for solving problems or critical thinking. And then we get a job, we get into the workplace and we're again measured on methods and systems that are based on rewards and punishments it's even more critical in the workplace because sometimes our security our our children's lives our our mortgages, our cars the way we survive in society modern society is based on whether we're going to be rewarded or punished and so that kind of power causes us to be in a very hyper sensitive hyper vigilant space because I can't trust anybody to actually give me the security that I can be safe in this system. And very often people resort to um, methodologies that I would consider to be um, reactive and, very, and sometimes even defense mechanisms for surviving in a work environment. Even if the work environment is supposedly uh, modern where I have all kinds of you know technology and, and, and furniture and systems that help me think it's a very modern space yet the fundamental difference between having an intrinsic workspace and an extrinsic workspace causes me to be in a hypersensitive space, uh, thinking system that it caused me to not be able to function to my true capacity, to my full potential and this is um, not only deleterious for me as an individual, but also for society itself and for the, um, the company, the corporate entity that's, that's supposedly uh, trying to make money based on my capacity to perform.
0: When I started reading your book, let's go to chapter 1.1. 1. 1. You talk about learning is connecting the dots. And you say, to learn, you need neurons. And to teach, you need to know how neurons work. So don't you think this whole thing is mind boggling that no one has ever asked us right through our whole educational system, anything about our brain and how it relates to learning? Like, doesn't this just blow your mind at this point?
1: Yeah, that's that's honestly where I go off, where if if this is the thing that we're trying to change, why don't we learn the thing? Right. You know, and and again, they've been doing that for hundreds of years. We, you know, we talk of of Hebb and Miller and, and great thinkers, you know, all over, you know, all over. But it's never been put together, you know, in, a, in that Nestle's Toll House chocolate chip recipe way, where if you get the yellow bag and look at that recipe and I get the yellow bag and look at that recipe, we both make the same cookie. Thinking has never been presented that way, a framework to think for yourself, you know, and that's that's the big difference.
0: Exactly. So I'm just curious off the top of your head, how do you improve your thinking?
1: Uh, by constantly finding out more about it and, and applying it and learning from others. It's the multiple perspectives, I guess, is the better answer for that, is because I do this every day and now think this way, I have the good fortune of speaking to people who want to get into it or learn more or hire us or are trained by us or certified by us. And they come from all over the place. This thing, when we first brought it out, we thought it was only for like uh, instructional designers, uh, people within learning and development departments in corporations, people who built, built courses, classes, or curriculum. That's what we thought. But they disproved us because they would come home saying, oh, my kid now understands this because I did this at home. Or now I ask Johnny this when he comes home. And now I do this. And and, you know, after a while, you start seeing patterns. And then we started doing uh, certification cohorts. And we were getting lawyers and priests and uh, kids in college and um, people looking for new careers, uh, consultants who had careers who wanted to level up because of the cognitive part. Um, And then everybody just kind of defined it for us, took us out of the L&D, you know, out of the onboarding, or shouldn't say out of, but just expanded the thinking to communication versus learning.
2: Let's hear Kieran's thoughts on this.
3: Indeed, it is mind boggling that we have spent so many years in the school system using the only organ of the human being that's needed for learning which is the brain and yet knowing almost nothing about it. I spent uh, 20 years in education and I was a good teacher um, and it was mostly because I was a very intuitive teacher I knew that some things worked and I knew that some things didn't really work even though sometimes the school systems made me do those things and I was pretty unsuccessful doing those things and my students were pretty unhappy and unsuccessful doing those things and I was forced to reward and punish them based on how unsuccessful and unhappy that they were. And yet, I didn't even think about the brain. In fact, everything I knew about the brain and I'd been taught about the brain by my professors as I was in teacher education was actually wrong. And, and to stumble up across this when I was in my research um, project at the University of Washington, which was the National Science Foundation first science of learning center. And we got to work with um, um, not only different universities like Stanford and SRI and um, the iLabs, I which is a neuroscience lab at the University of Washington and the College of Education. Uh, we still didn't um, connect up the neural capacities that people have, their propensity to be in that neural space with their a genius at solving problems and critical thinking. Even though we wanted to, we didn't know how. And then um, when, when that project was finished and I got involved in a short NIH project looking at the impact of marijuana and other drugs on adolescent brain, it was at that point that I got to work with neuroscientists in the field who already knew uh, amazing information about uh, things like attention, cognition, Um, nutrition, health, um, well-being, but also um, the connection between, we'll say, the mitochondria at the molecular level, or even the telomeres that are listening to our thinking. These are incredible pieces of information that we as parents and as teachers should know about ourselves and about our children. And when I began to take that research, which was basically written in you know, very erudite, scholarly works, peer-reviewed um, journals for neuroscientists, which are very difficult to read and were not necessarily easily um, translated into practice and process for people like parents and teachers who were not trained to either understand that language, which is mostly Latin and Greek, um, and and English. That's kind of based on <laughs> unbelievable um, formulas that are. You know acronyms that are very important for neuroscientists but we don't think like that we don't talk like that and so to take that information and bring it out into the public domain for teachers and for parents and for students because our children in our classrooms who can understand and remember ten thousand pokemons can easily learn five or ten things about their brains that will change their lives and so the idea of long-term potentiation is as, as important for them as some kind of Pokemon character who's able to do you know, long-term potentiation in a game. And, and so um, now that we have this information, and not only that, but a, a very good educative model that can, we can use to bring it to the uh, schools and classrooms and to the workplace, things can change. And that's where we're at right now. what should we all know about our brain to demystify it you know the first thing is in the demystification part is to understand that if you have a degree in latin or greek it's easy but if you don't have degrees in latin or greek well then you have to understand that most of these scientists named things for reasons unknown to us but are based on sometimes italian sometimes latin sometimes greek and sometimes Um, they're they're just making up names that are based on themselves so for instance Broca who was a French neuroscientist and he discovered a lot of information about the left hemisphere and speech he called it Broca's area and then his colleague in Germany who was working on another part of the speech area to do with understanding his name was Wernicke and so it's called Wernicke's area and so if you don't know that it's not easy to be able to talk about Broca's and Wernicke's area and understand it's so important for the phonological loop and how we learn language but if we begin to get into the neuroscience of and the history of neuroscience and and the neuroscience of how the brain itself takes these a hundred billion neurons with a hundred billion synapses and understand the the science of you know action potentials and and, and understand also that even these neuroscientists do not know how electricity and chemicals that are based in a neuron can cause us to have a thought. You and I talking right now has billions of neurons just interacting between us. And if, if we didn't have those connections, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. And so we have to have mental models about how our brain works and how we can actually Uh, understand neural plasticity so that this conversation is causing our brains to change and to grow. And that probably because of this conversation, you and I and maybe your listeners are actually growing new neurons in hippocampal regions that have to do with learning and memory.
0: And so what do you think we should all know about our brain to demystify it?
1: (laughs) that all those names were named after funny Italian or Latin guys.
0: <laughs> I all... love that. I love that answer. <laughs> when I was listening to Kieran's answer that we're going to put in here, we're going to, after each question with you, we're going to put in his answer. But I, I never thought of it that way because, you know, I just am writing down all these names. I never really thought of where they came from. And I thought, oh, wow, that just took that a step further for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When you think seahorse, ho- sea almond, all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, this is not so difficult. Um, so there's that. But I think the, the, the thing really to take away is that if you zero in on one science, and, and that's what we're in, the learning sciences and cognitive neuroscience. And if I said it was the one thing, it's that, there, that the giant brain, there's, there's only a couple little things you need to know about it to get what you want. And, and it's a breadcrumb trail. Think about it. If you touch something, it's got to go up those neurons into the brainstem, you know, through the you know animal brain, past the amygdala, into our limbic system, bounce around a couple lobes, get up here to the front of your skull where I'm thinking about it, and then I'm going to make a reaction. So rather than go ah, what's the trail? You know, what's the secret? And that's what it is. There's a secret to that. Uh, and regardless of the sense, hearing. The the olfactory smell is different. That's the one sense that gets to bypass everything. And that's meant to make you survive. You know, you smell putrefying meat, you jerk away very quickly. Uh, That's a defense mechanism because that's what it is. The brain is just there to help you survive and grow. That's its purpose.
0: Yeah. And so what about learning in the brain?
1: I would say the most important part about learning is to uh, there's three things I would say Miller's law chunking uh, which we now recognize at least in BCD we recognize as four plus or minus two Miller's law Hebb's rule and Kieran's principle which is a before e equals c or affect before effect those are those are the the building blocks of this but the the, the The thing you need to remember and the thing that BCD does, and you can do this on your own, is light up every lobe of the brain. In a typical classroom or a typical workspace at work, you know, we're in a workshop or training or what have you, it is typically the sage on the stage. Here I am, I'm talking for 50 minutes, here's a test, you know, answer as many right as you can, right or wrong. You're a B, I'm a C. That's the typical thing. In a BCD learning space, We light up every lobe of the brain. So no matter what the concept is, doesn't matter if it's new software, a new process, uh, how to, what have you, we're gonna give you a perspective on every lobe of the brain. You're gonna see it. You're gonna play with shapes. uh, You're gonna have small motor skills. You're gonna hear it. And you're gonna envision or propagate or strategize or generate new thought within the learning space. That's the biggest difference is you can't, People, people think they're an audible learner or a tactile learner or a visual learner, and what they are is a, that's their preference, but there are four lobes you've got to be a part of, and the more you connect to that concept, the stronger the memory or learning will be.
0: Got it. And if, if, you're a, if you were a teacher in the classroom, what would you focus on the most with your students? Would it be making them move every hour? What,
1: what you uh, yeah. You, you were thinking like, I was going to say brain breaks. Yeah. You know, so whatever the room age is, I would take their average age and every that much minutes, that many minutes I would do a brain break. So if I'm teaching eight year olds, I would, you know, every eight or nine minutes have some sort of a brain break to clear that little tiny working memory. Uh, sometimes we call it an attention span and, and, and get them on something to do a little switch to bring in some novelty because it's, it's, I think it's asinine to think kids are going to sit there for an hour when you know, they can't even watch just TV. They got to talk to their friend, be on their phone, watch TV, and you know throw things for the dog all at once. Right. So why are they going to sit down in a class and listen to you? So brain breaks would be my answer.
2: Let's hear Kiron's thoughts on this.
1: The only thing that we should know
3: about learning and the brain is that every brain is hardwired to learn. We as Homo sapiens have survived. We have arrived here in the 21st century. All the other species that, are, that were related like Homo africanus, Homo erectus, Homo, you name it. They didn't make it. But we did because we have that learning capacity. We have evolved our brains. The 100 billion neurons with the capacity to uh, be malleable. And plastic and to shift and to organize itself around new information we can survive because of our amazing connection to amygdala and and survival uh, attitudes but we can also um, not only make decisions uh, take in sensory information and make meaning from it and understand our environment and the interactions we have with other people the fact that we can be social and 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 most important have tolerance for ambiguity, and grow those parts of our brains and, and, and contribute. I mean, that's the difference between, um, we'll say, a zebra out there in the field who's got an amazing amygdala but not a very large PFC, if any, uh, and the child in your class or the child in your home who has a capacity for um, not only the emotional limbic area but also the survival um, hindbrain, And then the higher order uh, frequency space in the pre-FC that we can uh, engage with, solving problems, predicting, um, uh, helping other people, altruism. These are amazing capacities that are part of our brains. And as, as we know, as adults, we can have our children increase their capacity for working memory space, their capacity for processing power, their capacity for helping others and and having, um, uh, let's say, the the idea that I can have understanding, but also I can uh, have gratitude, and all of these emotional connections and social connections that help us to be part of modern society will help us not to make ourselves, um, you know, better in in society, but also to make society better for uh, the rest of the um, population, but also for the for the the planet itself. I mean, we have to be engaged in bring the amazing neural power that every child has into a space where we can contribute and generate and, 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 and grow that neural connection between the three parts of the brains that I just mentioned so that we have not only a capacity for survival but also an emotional and social capacity for surviving well and being happy and thriving, but also to be able to think about the impact we have with the other people we share the planet with, and the other uh, regions, spaces as well. Um, I think that's the gift that we have in this brain.
0: No, this is definitely eye opening. And then there, as we got into uh, into the book, there was in part four uh, where it talks about what does your daughter and jeff bezos have in common
1: uh the ability to chunk information down to digestible bits you know to have a big idea to look at a massive amount of information and have a process to develop what is the true big idea what is the measurable takeaway of that big idea that's that's what 90 percent of the world's missing right there hey we're gonna teach neuroscience yeah and then we start building it and in the way we look at it is, OK, we have all this information. We decide we're going to teach learning sciences in, the cognitive, uh, in cognitive neuroscience. And our takeaway is that people will understand it only takes two frameworks to do so. So we know what to expect, what, what behavior to expect before we even build the class.
0: And so how does that tie to Jeff Bezos?
1: Yeah, just made it simple. You know, everything, think of your, your Amazon app. I mean, everything, the user experience has been chunked down to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. It isn't by all this stuff. If you say you're going to look at fluffy fluffs, well, suddenly fluffy fluff stuff starts showing up and we now know how that works, but that the chunking is just to make it to where people can consume it too often. People need to cover information and say from a facilitator standpoint, my job is to cover this information. Here's my job order that says so. And if I cover all this information, I can check it off and say, I did my job. The, the, the question is kind of wrong and is that they need to have some sort of measurable uh, outcome from their learning to even have a success of it. Not that everybody finished it or was told it in one hour. And the chunking part just makes everything simple for everybody to understand. You know, he chunked out logistics every little bit. He chunked out shopping behavior through SEO and all these other things. He's chunking out new things all over the place, but he makes it digestible for people. He makes it uh, uh, mandatory at Amazon to where when you're presenting something, if you can't do it in five slides, you can't get the time to do it. You have to be able to think this way to it's like Albert Einstein said that genius is in uh, bringing things down to its simplest form, but not simpler. and And that's what chunking does. but there's a simple exercise to do it called the nested egg. Uh, and it takes all this information, finds your big idea finds the scaffolding thoughts that support that big idea, and then aligns all the concept under the scaffolding thoughts. So really you go into any learning space, you're only remembering two things. Like if I said 1492 to you, you could rattle off all kinds of things about the year 1492. That would be a scaffolded thought.
0: And, and this is what, what's interesting to me with, with that whole angle of making it simple is bringing it right back to neuroscience because the feedback, if I ever get any negative feedback on this podcast, it's, I don't understand the terms. Yeah. So it's trying to make this, and I keep saying, I'll make it simple. I'll make it simple. And then I'm thinking, well, how do I make it simple? That's what, that's the goal of every episode is to make everything that we're saying applicable for everybody, because that's such a powerful principle.
1: Yeah, and I'll give you an example. To simplify BCD, my my big idea is BCD. Uh, My measurable outcome would be interest from your show. You know, people contacting me like, yes, that would be great for me. How can I teach them about BCD? There's only two things you need to know. The nested egg and the challenge wheel. The nested egg is how you take that body of information and find your big idea and and basically put that information into uh, a format in which the brain can process it. That's key. So before you build anything, you find out your big idea, your scaffolding thoughts, and you align those concepts. And that's this information is now so the brain can process it with that information. You would then put it into a presentation model, the way people like to learn and how do they like to learn? That's called the challenge wheel. Uh, They like to learn if it's good for me right here, right now, if it's a benefit for me this second, I'm in. If it's something about George Washington's shoes and who made them when he crossed the Potomac, I have a cell phone. (laughs) Which is
0: why, this is why some people's podcasts, I listen to them and they're just talking about themselves. It's like how, it's not relating to me. So I've Mm got to make the content relate to other people, how they can use it, or they're just going to lose interest and how can they use it now?
1: Yeah, and that's where my interest came from. Because again, radio, I might have 10, 30 tops, 60 seconds to not only get your attention to, but but to make you act on something. You know, now you look at much more dire circumstances, our, our, our babies' brains, people at work, onboarding at your factory, you know, onboarding at your organization, where you know, HR will tell you money just bleeds from the hiring process, the onboarding process, the training process, the attrition of that process. Uh, and retaining people and the information you teach them. Um, that That's just because we're just using the same model we roll through. We might throw in gamification or micro learning or VR. Uh, those are perspectives, but that's not how the brain works. It just keeps our attention for a little bit of time.
2: Let's hear Kiron's thoughts on this.
3: It's interesting when you think about it. Uh, Rich's daughter and Jeff Bezos has the same hundred billion neurons and um, Jeff Bezos has a life journey and so has Rich's daughter a life journey and the, the choices that we make and the problems that we solve, the predictions that we make and the focus that we can bring to these things will give us the opportunity to manifest our lives in a way that can be productive and, and um, in fact thriving, or it can also give us uh, the opportunity to not be successful in society. And so the point is that it all comes from that amazing 100 billion neurons with those 10,000 connections per neuron, which gives us trillions upon trillions and trillions of, of potential. And that's what Rich's daughter and Jeff Bezos have in common.
0: So how would you translate this? I know we've talked a lot about schools, but what about sports? And we talked about the workplace but is there something specific you would do like how did nike use this
1: well there's certain things i can and can't say but it it's with nike everything is about the athlete and everybody's an athlete um so in a a lot of ways i would say the emphasis was on empathy Uh, so if somebody is calling you have to relate What what Nike understands and moves at a velocity that most companies don't understand is that there must be an emotional connection before you do anything. In any product, you can look, and and I'm talking not just shoes, but uh, consumer services, uh, brand, legal, the retail stores. In every product, you are emotionally connected because that's what they're going for. That is there. And that's what everyone should go for with everything. Every good decision you've made for yourself, you are emotionally connected to it. You know what I mean? And, and that's, that's what I say when people use it, they understand that before Nike employees come into Nike, that they are people and they have brains and those brains and people have lives outside of Nike that don't turn off when you come into Nike and so they they address that. They understand the brain. they they they're not just innovating fabrics that are recyclable and making you know soles out of the waste of their old soul. I mean, they're doing so many different things, but with people, with with capital, human capital, they understand there's a brain, and that uh, there's a behavior that's also expected. And to manage that behavior, you must bring in the societal and emotional aspects of their life into work to where they feel safe enough to thrive because you hired them because they had the talents. So if I said, how does Nike use it? I would say in that manner. They address it head on and they continue to win year after year after year.
2: Let's hear Kiran's thoughts on this.
1: It's funny
3: that you ask how this can be applied to different industries. My focus has always been on K-12, even though most of my research was done with um, consenting adults. Uh, we don't experiment with, with babies and with children um, because you know, they don't have the opportunity to consent and we did ask their parents to consent for them. But the pedagogic models and the information that we um, put together in terms of um, the neuroscience of, of learning um, is easily translated from adults into high school, middle school, elementary and preschool. And the interesting thing for me is that um, when we take it the other way and and we know that the impact of this model and this work in elementary schools and middle schools is phenomenal and what we can achieve in that space is just incredible. Well, you know, children who at age five, six and seven were dysfunctional and didn't um, have opportunities because teachers didn't know how or they were using different methods which didn't work. They didn't know how to have children understand how to regulate, self-regulate. Well, they grew up and they get jobs in the workplace. And now at age 35 or 45 or 55, they still have executive function impairment because they're still dysregulated. They have the same problems we see in high school or middle school or elementary school. They can't focus. They can't pay attention. They can't work in teams. They're, they're reactionary. They're scared. They're They're anxious they don't show up on time they can't initiate tasks stay on tasks finish tasks and they cause a lot of problems for hr they cause problems for their teams and they cause problems for themselves and so if you learn how to self regulate at age 3 4 or 5 or 6 or 7 you've got it for the rest of your life if you don't learn how to self regulate well then you're going to cause that chaos to be follow you into your industries and whatever you do in life it could be your relationships your marriage or your your workspace it's going to be there and um, we can easily fix that again with the neuroscience of learning but it's a lot more difficult when we have myelinated these white matter tracks for so long and entrenched our thinking in fixedness to get out of those uh, stuck spaces and be able to engage in a way that we can have children do easily because of plasticity
0: Well, so why would you say that this is revolutionary and something that we should pay attention to now? Like what, what have we missed before and why is this so important now?
1: Uh, What we missed before was the neuroscience of it that, you know, the Miller uh, that's a quoted psychology paper, just on working memory, the neuroscience put it together with a process. Uh, and, and that's the biggest difference in, in Kiran is, is that author. I mean, he's the one who, who stitched seven different disciplines together for a fabric that, that would handle a uh, society and, and it, at its base, it's very simplistic. The brain is going to do what's good for the brain. And so the first thing is survive or protect you. And the second thing is uh, grow and, and become you know mastery of your universe, your individual person. And so what this does is allow you to do that within your team. So instead of learning this new process in a BCD uh, learning space, we learn how this process is going to make my life easier at work. It's not a process. It's something I do at work to achieve this mission there's subtle little just changes. So this layers on, it's like Gore-Tex, you know, it's, you can put this on any discipline, any, any place where there's an observable human behavior that uh, you're looking for uh, and optimize that situation by reframing how it's communicated to the person.
2: Let's hear Kiron's thoughts on this.
3: So I love this question, why is BCD revolutionary? The crazy thing is the revolution happened in September 11, 1956. We are so late to the game. It is incredible. I mean, something that was discovered in 1947 in Sweden called long-term potentiation. And it was supposed to be the most revolutionary, fun, uh, just amazing um, uh, finding for all of learning. And I stumbled across it by accident in 2019. Well, that was what, 60, 70 years late. So, so, you know, this is important and it's revolutionary, but we're late, we're very late to the game. We've already lost two or three generations of people. And that explains why society is so fractured right now, why people can be so entrenched in their thinking, so fixed in their thinking, and not able to understand that their brains have the capacity, their reticular activating systems to cause them to be fixed, or to cause them not to be fixed and we don't even know what fixed and growth means unless we have a deep mental model about what that means in in, in terms of our uh, capacity for existence in the world. We don't understand what the difference between routine and adaptive expertise is and we particularly don't understand the shift between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation and so unless we get to those places it's not going to be revolutionary and so what BCD is doing and what we're doing in our educational programs is helping teachers first and then parents and students understand this uh, paradigm shift on three planes at the same time this idea of mindset this idea of expertise and this idea of motivation. I always like to to give credit to the people that that came before us that that basically opened this space for us. And and I'm talking about professors and, and fields of research for, you know, 20 and 30 years of of really intense academic study that show us the connection between the brain and learning, between the brain and plasticity, between the brain and and, and cognitive load. And these people are amazing. Their life stories are amazing. And if I was uh, designing a course for people to understand, I'd have them understand people like um, John Bransford. I'd have them understand people like George Miller, people like Donald Hebb, people like um, Marion Diamond, amazing scientists who did phenomenal work, but they didn't all uh, live in the same time or interact with each other. And also, I should mention Sir Herbert Simon, and, and a few other people that just have revolutionized the way we show up in the world and, and and when we bring all this together and I think this is what this book does in this course of work that we do at Brain Centric Design is to bring all the pieces together and to put them into um, a, a model which I call the pedagogical model that allows us to uh, make mental models to be able to uh, make meaning in our world using the capacities of our brains because we now have a new understanding of how that works and to be able to walk away and have a picture of the potential that each person has with those trillions and trillions and trillions of um you know uh, synaptic um events that can happen the the activations that we can cause and and not only um improve our lives but to thrive in our lives and i think that's the, the the generous thing that our brain can do for all of our children is to give them um capacity in in the modern world that they can be ready for what's coming because we have no idea what's coming the pace of change and and the and and, and the capacity in 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 not only artificial intelligence but all of the mathematics that's coming out and all of the, um, the, the it's basically the 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 information that's pouring in and and we're still working through the same, uh, what I would call the limitations of working memory. But if we understand how working memory works, if we have a mental model about the size of our brain and the size of our processing power, then we have a better um, chance of not only, we we'll say surviving it, but thriving it as well.
0: With all my questions, Rich, is there anything that I haven't touched on that's important that you do with BCD?
1: no i mean the wonderful thing is is you're so thorough with everything and the thing i love about you is you're you're like me kind of a curious george uh, monkey type of person where you know you're you want it's so fascinating we have these three pounds of goop up here um what you're doing is is super beneficial getting it out to folks to where they can at least put their toe in the water and say hey is this for me or have a conversation i won't sell you my goal here is like i said at the beginning to solve problems and if you're looking for an application, uh, or would this work here, you know, or I'll tell you or, or show you where to go because the, the, to have people that think for themselves can only be uh, an exponentially potential, wonderfully thing because instead of boxed knowledge, you know, people say, Oh, I'm thinking out of the box. Even, they even know they're in the box but they don't know how to, to not be in the box. And the beautiful thing about this is it gives people a choice. There are times, like I say, when the behaviorist method is apropos. There are, they're they're minimal. It's almost like Pareto principle, 80-20, perhaps, kind of a law. But the rest of the time you need to be thinking. You need to be solving problems. You need to be using that one part of your brain that humans have. That nobody else does. This executive function, prefrontal cortex. It's a goldmine of, of answers. And that's the great thing about the science: is all these things you do that that you thought work. Well, now you know why. And or like my daughter when she's you know confused after this thing happened. Now she knows why. And you have tools to get out of those situations and better yourself. And it's the answers in your head. It's not an app. You know, there's no subscription. <laughs> It's your brain, and and it's ever changeable forever. My dad just turned ninety, and we got him a saxophone and a awesome. book of music because that's what he wants to learn. You know, what I mean, it's wow. it's, uh, it's so long as you keep using it, it'll work. Use it properly, and here's a set of directions.
0: That's so interesting because I've got an interview tomorrow morning with someone that's working on preventing dementia, and the the goal or the main part of his whole TED talk was learn something new and novel every day and that'll that'll at least help because we're all going to move towards old age let's let's do it with our brain and mind so i love that you've done that
1: well thank you so much and thanks again for the opportunity to talk with you uh, somebody like not only a like mind but uh, uh with, with your with your credibility and reach it's just a thrill
0: Absolutely. I really am grateful that you came on here to share everything you're doing. If people want to reach out to you, what is the best way? Is it through braincentricdesign.com?
1: Yeah, braincentricdesign.com or car knowledge.com, C A R R knowledge.com. Uh, any contact there, or if I threw an email out there, I would say rc at braincentricdesign.com uh, would be the easiest way. I'm very connected, I reply quickly. Uh, I love all comers because, again, those different perspectives uh, are only adding to my knowledge base, and uh, that's a joy to have people excited about it as well.
0: And people are excited. You're off to Calgary, Alberta, right? Are you in the U.S. and you're going over to Canada right now? Is that?
1: Yeah, I'm just uh, just south of Seattle, where I live. Okay. Um, and uh there's a opportunity up there in uh, Calgary with an organization that is going to help us expand uh faster and further internationally, just because the demand for Kiran and I has outmatched uh, resources. And uh and by that I mean uh people resources, people who can teach this model. So many people out there uh that that this this touches and plays with and and getting more people on board is all we're looking for.
0: Definitely. Well, I'll put all the links to contact you in the, in the show notes. And for people that want to learn more, just reach out to Rich and Kieran. They are doing incredible things. And I'm just so thrilled that I had this opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into brain-centric design and learn about what you're doing. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Andrea. Keep it cognitive. Absolutely.